This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Mallory, that sounds fascinating. I will take it under consideration. But if I never sleep again, we're going to have words. Yeah, well, just read it during the day. <laughs> read it out on your porch in full sunlight. And as soon as it gets dark, put it in the freezer. <laughs> hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle. And this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 176. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, here on What Should I Read Next, I've helped a lot of readers get out of their comfort zones, but today's guest, Mallory O'Mara, is taking me out of mine. Her wheelhouse is everything bizarre, paranormal, and downright scary. So as you will hear, it took several tries, more than several, to find three books I had experience with that she hadn't already read. So yeah, you'll hear about a ton of books that have never, ever been talked about on the show. And it is so much fun. When we dug past the surface differences, Mallory and I actually have a lot in common especially a desire to understand how an author did that. How did they pull off the magic trick that turned regular words on a page into an extraordinary reading experience? We had a great time chatting about the magic of rereading a favorite book, arguing with critics, how comfort reading looks way different for different readers, and her pro tips for dealing with the post-scary book jitters. Let's get to it. Mallory, welcome to the show. And thank you so much for having me. Well, you were kind enough to host me over at your podcast, Reading Glasses, back in the fall. And it is a pleasure to have you in the What Should I Read Next space today. Yeah, it's very exciting. We were so pumped when your book came out. And I thought, oh my gosh, my book is never going to come out. It's never going to get here. (laughs) And now it's March. It has been a long time, but not in publishing terms. I mean, you blink and here we are in spring 2019. Yeah. You know, I've been working on this project for three years and it seems like so long, but it got, gosh, it it feels like I just started writing it. (laughs) It's easy for me to say it goes fast when I didn't have to do the writing and the research. And we will get to that. Mallory, I know that our reading tastes are very different because some of your favorite books scare the ever-living daylights out of me. <laughs> I feel like I'm coming on one of those fashion makeover shows where you get ex- <laughs> where you get really excited to see what outfits that the host picks out for you. Being on What Should I Read Next and getting book recommendations from you is so exciting. So I'm like waiting in the wings. I can't wait to hear about your story. And especially because even though I know that we do gravitate towards different books, I feel like you are really a kindred spirit. I so enjoyed after listening to your podcast, but especially seeing your own words that you had planned out and carefully written to tell your readers who you are and why you're telling this story in The Lady from the Black Lagoon. You talked about how the story just got a hold of you, held the door open and invited you in. And you love to hear the story behind the story and you love to find out how things are made and you want to know how the artist pulls off their magic trick. And those are all things that had me going, yes, me too, me too. Yes, exactly that. Does your wanting to know what happens behind the scenes interest go way back in your reading life and the rest of your life? Oh, absolutely. I feel like part of me being a fan of any kind of art, whether it's books or movies, is wanting to know how it was done. Uh, That's actually what drew me to 
film in the first place is just watching things and thinking, gosh, how did they do that? How did they make that? So uh, when I started writing Lady from the Black Lagoon, I really brought that into it. I was talking with a novelist friend this weekend who said that she used to read books, like she specifically was talking about The Time Chaliver's Wife. She'd read it and she'd get to the end and go, what an amazing experience. How did she do that? But now she knows how they did that. It's a lot of hard work and a lot of intricate craft and the magic is kind of gone. And I was like, wait, what? I'm assuming that you are not in that camp. Yeah, it's funny. I've actually heard that from a lot of my own author friends. And I hear them say, oh, now that I'm a writer, now I don't read for pleasure. It's like a boxer watching a boxing match. And while I'm reading, I'm constantly trying to figure out what they're doing. And I don't feel like that at all. For me, it adds to the magic, especially if I, you know, I see an author pull off some amazing emotional manipulation. I'm just like, oh my gosh, what did they do to get me here? What did they do to make me cry? I, and it just makes me want to read more. Hard work is magic, Mallory. It totally is. We'll just put that on an inspirational poster. I'll get my needlepoint out right now. (laughs) I am a re-reader for that very reason. The first time I enjoyed the story, but after that, you can notice how they told you the story and why it worked. Do you like to revisit your favorite books and movies also? Oh, absolutely. I am a complete rereader. Actually, in the lead up to the launch of this book, I've been, as you will understand, very stressed out. And that's my favorite (laughs) thing to do is comfort reads are my Mm rereads. Because if I really love a book, I'm going to get something new out of it every single time I read it. You know, especially when you really love something and you're kind of reading it as fast as you can because you're desperate to know what happens. You miss things. And all of my favorite books, as I reread them for the second, third, fourth, fifth time, I noticed something new, something magical, something I sort of overlooked the first time. And that's why, you know, if I love a book, I've probably read it at least 10 times. (laughs) (laughs) That is comforting for me to hear as a fellow writer, because I know that you must have revisited the same material over and over and over and over writing your book just because of the research process. And I can't wait to hear more about it. But first, I want to say that I was so happy to see some of the early reviews for your book. They're really flattering, Mallory. Oh, thank you so much. It's been sort of overwhelming uh, as a debut author. It, it's funny because you have nothing to compare any of this to. So I would constantly, my agent would send me things and I would say, is that good? Because <laughs> you just have no frame of reference. And every book's journey is so different. And so much of it is just sort of luck and timing mixed up with all of your hard work. And it's been a very, very interesting journey as such a big reader to finally see what things are like in the publishing world. And it's been really exciting, but as I said, also a little bit overwhelming. I can imagine, but I feel like I often argue, especially with Kyrgyz. I'm like, did, did we read the same book? But it was very gratifying to see that their response to The Lady from the Black Lagoon, your new March release, was similar to mine. Like as a reader, I love that experience of reading a nonfiction book, usually at the urging of someone whose taste I trust. Because I may pick it up going, I don't think I really care about jellyfish or sidewalks <laughs> or space dust or the digestive system or the creature from the Black Lagoon. Like I don't watch a lot of that kind of thing. But then you read a good book by an author who can show you why this subject that you knew nothing about or would even care about reading is fascinating at least in their hands. Publishers Weekly said that your enthusiasm for your subject overcomes all objections you may have to wait, do I care about this topic? They said, yes, yes, you do. So congratulations on pulling that off. Thank you. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Actually, part of the reason why I included some of the memoir parts of the book is I have a really good friend named Kate. And while I was in the very, very early stages of putting this book together, Kate does not like monster movies. She does not like horror. And she said, Kate and I would be such good friends. You and Kate would really get along. (laughs) She's wonderful. But she said, why should I care about this book? And the first thing out of my mouth was, well, what happened to her? you know, still happens to women in every industry. And she said, well, there, that's your key. That's your in to get people interested in this book. She's like, because people who like Creature from the Black Lagoon are already going to read this. It's the people who don't really care about monster movies that you're going to want to attract. And so I decided to put some memoir parts of it. And and the cool thing about Millicent, as you now know, is that her life crossed over with so many other parts of history that the Creature from the Black Lagoon stuff is only a, you know, a small chunk of her life. She did so, so much more. So that's, people are always asking me, they're like, oh, do I have to watch 
much Creature from the Black Lagoon to read this book. I'm like, no, you absolutely do not. (laughs) Well, I was going to say, I don't know that I ever will, but should I? You can if you want to. It's actually not too scary. It's it's it was scary in the fifties, but I don't know if it's so scary now. We're so used to horror movies being the scariest scary and you know being perfectly calculated with jump scares and with scary noises to you know terrify you. When back in the nineteen fifties, just seeing a monster was scary. So I think it's a little tamer now to compared to movies nowadays. But if you're not a monster person, you really don't have to watch it. (laughs) We started by talking about how sometimes a story just grabs you and pulls you in. How did that happen for you with this story? For me, with Millicent Patrick, it was more about what wasn't there than what was. uh, Because after she designed the creature from the Black Lagoon and her... Uh, one of the guys that she worked for at the Universal Monster Shop, he blacklisted her and fired her and no one really knew what happened to her after that. So she has been this great mystery in the film world for decades. And whenever I would think about her or talk to people about her, that was always the question that was left hanging is, you know, what happened to her? As a big reader, you know, that's the question that we all want to answer all the time is what happened next? What happened? So it really drew me in just wanting to know the rest of her story. Now, her claim to fame was designing that costume, being the only woman to ever design a monster costume in Hollywood, correct? Yes. And she had a successful career up until that point. Yeah, she actually, I mean, she was one of the first female animators at Disney. She had a really incredible, really varied career in all kinds of film. So that was just sort of the pinnacle of her work up until then, but it was also her downfall. So you started looking into who this woman was, and I think it's so interesting, your explanation about how you chose to consistently call her Millicent Patrick in the book, because she went by many different names. I can't imagine how difficult that made your research, but you started looking into it, and I want to know what happened next for you, Mallory. Well, it took me so, so long to find anything about her. The problem with her is that so many people had dismissed her because of her gender, all of her contributions were just sort of hidden. So I had to turn into this sort of like Indiana Jones kind of person and teach myself how to privately investigate her, which ended up being great for me because I am such a library nerd that I got to go into so many different libraries and so many different archives and sort of root around. And, you know, when you hear stories like this, you think, oh, well, it would be so cool if I could do that too. And I was having that experience constantly while I was sitting there. I was like, they're allowing me to come in and look at this stuff. You know, you feel like you've gotten one over on someone. You're like, do they know that I'm a big fan and I'm a big nerd? Finally, (laughs) they're allowing me in here. So it it took about a year of that before I could even get enough material to put together a proposal to get a literary agent and to realize, to think that I could do it. There were a few points in the research where I thought, maybe I can't find her. Maybe I won't be able to do this. But it pulled together. Yes. (laughs) I just kept butting my head against the wall with stuff like that. I just, you know, kept asking new people, finding new historical historians. I got a lot of weird leads on this. It feels weird calling it a case because I'm not actually a private investigator, but I kept getting really interesting leads from the strangest places. So I just sort of had to keep going out there and talking and trying everything that I could. Tell me about a strange lead you got along the way. Well, the, probably the strangest one was going to the Mormons. I have no religious background, so I didn't, wasn't really familiar. The Mormon church has such an incredible connection to genealogy. And when a friend of mine said, you know, if you're looking for anybody, you should go to the Mormon church. I was like, that's a very strange suggestion, but okay. And I just went in there and it ended up breaking open my entire investigation. And it was just such a strange resource that I would have never thought on my own. Would you tell your fellow library nerds about some of the libraries you visited and what you found there? One of my favorites is probably the Cinematic Arts Library at the University of Southern California, because it's very strange if you're a library nerd to go into a library that's not for books. It's all film archives. So it's like being in a strange parallel universe where it sounds like a library and it smells like a library and it looks like a library, but it's all film stuff. There's film posters everywhere and there's film archives and there's just all sorts of treasures everywhere. So it was such a fascinating experience to be in a library that was for something else besides literature. How interesting. 
I would love to hear a few of the things about Millicent that made you know the story really needs to be told. What what really got you about the story? What really always impressed me and still impresses me about Millicent Patrick is her resilience. And she worked in Hollywood for decades and she reinvented herself so many times, which was funny because it ended up being a huge pain in the butt for me because her reinventing herself included changing her name. (laughs) It was very, very difficult. By the end of the research, three years in, I was looking up seven different combinations of names in in databases, but I was just so surprised. I think, especially now in this world of media, you know, so many of us wear so many different hats. You know, you and I were writers, but also podcasters and bloggers, and you do so many things. But Millicent was doing this, you know, in the 1950s. She was she did art of so many different kinds. She was an animator. She was a designer. She was a fashion designer. She was a makeup designer. She tried so many things. And I think it's just so incredible to read about someone doing that all the way back then, especially as a a woman, an unmarried woman, just sort of, you know, trying to live her art dream. Something I found really fun about the book as a reader who does enjoy liking to see how the pieces come together. Well, in addition to the structure, your chapter titles were so, so fun and perfect. But I loved the footnotes you shared along the way. Publishers don't always like that, but you point out to readers like, oh, hey, this is the highway that you've seen in Donnie Darko. (laughs) By the way, this is the animator of Bambi's girlfriend. Not a correct zoological term, but you get me. I'd love to know your thought process behind wanting to let the reader in and showing them these glimpses about what it was like to tell the story and giving them little, like, I must feel like you're nudging me and being like, hey, hey, you may appreciate what's going on here more if I can just tell you this one thing. The footnotes thing was such a funny process because one... I am a big footnotes nerd. I'm a huge fan of Mary Roach, who is my favorite nonfiction writer. (laughs) And I just love that. I love her humor. So when I sold the book to my editor, Peter Joseph at Hanover Square Press, in our very first phone call with each other, we were talking about nonfiction authors we love. And both of us said, oh my gosh, we love Mary Roach. So when I got off the phone, I said, oh, this is the editor I'm going to work with. This is someone who gets me. This is someone who will be able to appreciate footnotes and some silliness. And then as I was writing it, I really decided to go all out on the footnotes because, you know, I talk about some really difficult things in the book. You know, there's a lot of sexism that Millicent had to deal with and that I've had to deal with. And, you know, it's not fun to read about. It's really sad. So I... I I needed to break it up a little bit and I wanted it to feel like going out to brunch with your friends, them telling you a stressful story that they had to deal with that week, you know, making jokes along the way, because if you can't, if you can't laugh, you're going to cry. So it just made it, the tone of it feel a little easier. Just for me as a writer, it's hard to write about sad things. Like I cried at the end of writing this book. So putting in some jokes and putting in clarifications on things too. Like I said before, I don't don't want listeners and readers to think, oh my gosh, I have to know everything about filmmaking. I have to know about Creature from the Black Lagoon. I have to know about monster movies. I wanted it to feel really accessible. So as I was writing, I would say, oh, you know what? You Maybe you don't know what this is. I'm just going to clarify this for you. So I really wanted it to feel like a friend telling you a story and it's totally okay for you not to know everything. Yeah, I appreciated that as a reader and found it a lot of fun. Mallory, what has writing this book done to your reading life? You know, I think it's just made it better. Like I said before, some writers really lose their love of reading. But for me, it just made me want to read even more deeply and more widely as someone who is normally a big reader. When I'm stressed out, I read even more. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I've just been a book wood chipper for the past few months. (laughs) I just finished an audiobook that I really, really loved. It's a memoir called How to Be Alone by Lane Moore. Lane Moore is a comedian and a writer, and she wrote this whole story about, you know, being estranged from her family, having romantic difficulties, and sort of, you know, the joy that she finds in, like, being alone and having her own life. I just thought it was so, so funny and so wonderful. And it was such a great collection of essays. Some people are like, oh, well, you wrote a part memoir. How can you listen to memoirs now? Or how can you read memoirs now? And it just makes me love them more because I just want to know how it's done and how to get better. Okay, I'm ready to hear more about the books you love. Are you ready? I am so ready. Okay, you know how this works. You are going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. And then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. 
Let's start with your favorites. Mallory, what's the first book you love? Uh, first book I love is a collection called Get in Trouble by Kelly Link. I am such a huge Kelly Link fan. I think that she is the queen of short story writing in America right now. She writes these incredibly woven short stories that take bits of sci-fi, bits of literary fiction, bits of fantasy, bits of horror, and, you know, swirl them all together. It's just is so, so magical. And she's very funny and very poignant. Oh, I can't get enough of her. I've read every single short story collection she has. And I know she's working on a novel right now. And every time she tweets, I'm like, oh my gosh, is it done? <laughs> oh my gosh, is it done? We had a guest. It's Nicholas Siegel, if you're listening and you want to hear more about Kelly Link, who cited this as a favorite too. And he's like, she's just so weird. And I love it. I love weirdness. That is one of my favorite things. I love books that are not confusing. I'm not here for books that, you know, intentionally make it so you don't know what's going on. But I love, love, love strangeness and the unexpected. I just love novelty. And it makes me so thrilled when I'm reading a story and something happens that's just so strange and fascinating that I I just, I'm like, oh my gosh, a fairy just popped out of that thing. A fairy (laughs) just popped uh, popped out of this character's coffee mug. I have to know what's going on. Someone rather well-respected like Gaiman or King called her darkly playful. And that seems to fit in with what you were talking about, about telling your own story. Oh, absolutely. She is, uh, you know, darkly whimsical. You know, she makes it so wonderful to read these, you know, some some of her stories are horror stories, but she weaves in so much joy and novelty that it makes it almost fun. And it's almost like, you know, being led to the witch's house with gingerbread. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Mallory, what's another book that you love? My second book is called A Head Full of Ghosts by Paul Tremblay. And Paul, I think, is one of the most important and best horror authors that are working in America today. This novel is sort of... We have always lived in the castle with Shirley Jackson mashed up with an exorcism story. It is about this working class family in modern day in Massachusetts and one of the teenage girls in the family. They can't tell if she is sick or if she's possessed, but things get stranger and stranger and scarier and scarier. Paul Tremblay is the master of walking this line between, is this actually happening or is this supernatural or is there a a rational explanation? And he walks this perfect razor line between the two and it's so masterful. He's one of those authors that you have to read again and again because you're like, how did he do this? I almost never read horror and I haven't read this book, but I'm so intrigued by it and think I actually might. How how scary is it, Mallory? Because here's what really gets me about it. I really like the way I've been told he plays with that tension. What's really happening here? The way that he tells this story sounds fascinating to me to set up different voices and tell it in different formats so that the reader has to decide what they think. I really think he is a master of craft. After you reach the final page of the book, you almost feel like you just watched a magic trick because he keeps that confusion of whether is this supernatural or is it not almost the last line. And so when you're reading it, it is very scary. I will warn you. But no, that's not what I wanted you to say. I wanted to say, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Because School Library Journal has recommended it for teen libraries, which gave me some hope. But I'm sure there are a lot of teens that are braver than I am when it comes to content. Teenagers are very brave. (laughs) (laughs) The, The two things that I think are really exciting about this book for people who might be very scared by things is one, it's such a really great mystery. Because while you're reading it, you really are every chapter saying, oh my gosh, does this mean that this is just a physical ailment or, oh my gosh, does this mean that she's actually possessed? You know, that fascination and that, you know, wonder of what, what whether it's really happening can pull you through some of the scariness. Uh, it's also very, very, like, there's a lot of girl power in the book, which is really fun and sort of rare for an exorcism story. And there's a really funny line that I love where everyone's standing around and they're talking, they're trying to figure out if she's actually possessed. They said, oh, well, she was speaking. She said this thing in Latin and somebody else goes, she's a 14-year-old girl with a laptop. You think she can't figure this stuff out (laughs) on her own? And it just made me laugh so hard. And it's so, that kind of stuff is so, so refreshing. So when people tell me, oh, I don't really read horror, that's one of the ones that I like to recommend if they want to try out the genre. Mm -hmm. And another part that is really cool and exciting is that mixed up with 
the structure of the book is are these blog entries about the events of the book years later. So it's that sort of amazing mystery structure that a lot of thrillers have that sort of pull you along because you're the first time I read this book, I read it in one sitting because I could not put it down. Wow. It's not small. No. I stayed up all night and I just could not stop reading this book. So what happens is the desperate family agrees, ready to try anything, to be the subjects of a reality TV show. Yes? Yes. Okay. It's such a strange and brilliant part of the book where the family, one of the things I really, really love about it is it explores uh, some economic horror. You know, it's this family, the father has just gotten laid off, so they really don't have a lot of money and they can't afford these medical bills because they're trying to figure out, while they're trying to explore the sickness, they're like, well, maybe it's spiritual. You know, they keep taking taking her to the doctor because they want her to be okay. But, you know, as we all know, in 2019, uh, medical bills are not an easy thing to shoulder. So this reality TV show approaches them and they agree to be on it in exchange for money. So that's also a part of the book is that this camera crew coming in and filming this teenage girl and filming the family's reactions. And it makes it more surreal and more tense and more strange. And that's what the blog entries are reflecting on is the episodes of the reality TV show. The foreshadowing and the tension and the dread that builds up is Mm -hmm. just amazing. Oh, and I really admire writers who can slowly ratchet up the sense of urgency in a story. Yes, and that's why I had to read it in one sitting and I (laughs) lost a night of sleep. Thank you, Paul Tremblay. NPR described this book in such a brilliant way. They called it something like a book about a book, about a TV show, about something that really happened, but we're not sure exactly what with running commentary by a blog that has its own secret issues. Okay, Mallory, that sounds fascinating. I will take it under consideration, but if I never sleep again, we're going to have words. Yeah, well, just read it during the day. <laughs> read it out on your porch in full sunlight, and as soon as it gets dark, put it in the freezer. <laughs> Does that work? You know what? I did it when I read Stephen King's It when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And it does help a little bit, just not having the book in your bedroom. (laughs) Placebos are powerful. Yes. Mallory, tell me about the third book you love. So the third book is a book called Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood. And it is a memoir about, uh, you know, the author, Patricia Lockwood. Her father is a Catholic priest. For people listening, they say, wait a minute, Catholic priests can't marry and have kids. But her father started out as a different kind of priest. I think he was an Episcopalian priest and moved laterally into the Catholic church, but he already had a wife and kids. So they, through some, you know, religious loophole, let him be a Catholic priest with a family. But her father is the wackiest, most hilarious person and only became a priest because while he was in the Navy, he saw the exorcist on a submarine and it scared him so badly that he decided to join the church. You know, he's a guitar playing, pants hating, hilarious guy. So it's just her memoir of growing up in this religious household and with this hilarious, weird Catholic priest dad. And it is without a doubt the funniest book I have ever read in my entire life. High praise. I've read it twice and I've listened to the audiobook because she narrates it and she does all of her family members' voices, which is extra funny. <laughs> it's incredible. I didn't know the story of how her father converted. I didn't realize the submarine was involved. I mean, I guess watching The Exorcist on a submarine would be pretty scary, but the fact that it scared him enough that he had to go join the church is just so funny. <laughs> <laughs> So we were talking about Kelly Link being darkly playful. On the other hand, Priest Daddy is funny, but also really sad and moving. Is that fair? Yes. And actually, that's one of the books I reread in anticipation of writing my own book. There are a lot of sad parts to Priest Daddy. She talks about some of her own experiences that are tragic. Her telling it in this way that is so open and vulnerable, but also being so, so funny. You so feel for her and you want to know more about her within the first chapter. You're with her. You know, you know, when you're, when you start reading a book and you're like, Oh my gosh, I love this author. I will go on any journey with them. I am here for them. That's how you feel about Patricia Lockwood. That's such a great feeling when you start a book and you're like, yep, I will follow you anywhere. Let's go. Whatever you want to talk about, whatever weird story you want to tell me, I am here for it. Now, I can't wait to hear about the book that you said was not for you. 
Yes. We have a rule on my own podcast, Reading Glasses, where we don't like talking about books that we don't like. But this book is so popular that I feel like it's okay. The author will be okay with me saying that I don't like her book. My book that I don't like is Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. And I tried to like this book so, so much. And I feel like me reading Outlander is like how some people feel about blue cheese or cilantro. <laughs> I love blue cheese and cilantro. I'm also looking forward to the next Diana Gabaldon book. You know, when you're reading a book and you're like, this book is so well-written and I see why people love it, but gosh, this is just not for me. And that's how I felt about Outlander. I just couldn't find my way into it. I got, I think it was 300 pages in Sometimes I will make a cocktail for my partner and I know that it's a really well-made cocktail and he'll say, you know what? I just don't like these ingredients. I know you did it as well as you could, but I can't drink this. And that's how I felt about Outlander. Not every book is for every reader and that is okay. Have you been able to put your finger on what the elements were that made it not the right book for you? I think it was a combination of things. I do have a hard time. I think maybe because I'm so fascinated with how things work. I was the kind of person where when she fell through, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler for people to know that the main character ends up falling through a portal into another time period. I'm the kind of person I was like, wait, go back. I don't want to hear about what she did when she go through the portal. I want to know how the portal works. <laughs> Hold on. How is it? How is any of this happening? How is this affecting this, this world? Uh, but it's very, very character driven. Uh, and, and I felt kind of bad for her husband. <laughs> the husband left behind in 1945. Yeah, I did feel sort of bad for him. That's fair. I wanted her to maybe feel differently about things. Gosh, I just have a, such a hard time talking about books that I don't like. Mallory, it sounds like you really just wanted everybody to be happy forever. But yeah. we just listened to the books you love. I mean, that doesn't really fit with Paul I Turnboy. know, it's, it's so weird. Uh, this is what makes readers and the reading life fascinating. I think I have a problem with internal conflict. And I think that's why I like horror so much. I'm a very anxious person. So I have a hard time reading about other characters that are dealing with their own personal issues. Like I can fight off a demon, but please don't make me fight off my own problems. <laughs> reading a head full of ghosts or get in trouble where people are tangling with the devil and fairies and vampires. That is actually more relaxing to me than someone dealing with a complicated relationship issue. <laughs> that is really insightful. I actually have a hard time with some romance novels. You know, some people will read them and they're like, oh, this is so amazing. But for me, it's very stressful, especially Regency romance, etiquette issues and like social climbing. It makes me so stressed out. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, no Regency romance for you, Mallory. Oh, gosh, it just when someone's in a situation and they're mortified because they didn't use the right fork, like I get so <laughs> vicariously stressed out. But if someone is in a book fighting off a werewolf, that is like my comfort food. And I don't, it's so strange. I think that is amazing and a really useful thing to know for your reading life. It does help out a lot, especially now when I'm in this, I mean, you know, launching a book can be such a stressful endeavor. So I'm like the past few weeks, I'm just like, give me all the scary things, give me all my scary books and they will make me feel better. All right. I'll see if I can help with that. Right now you're reading the memoir, How to Be Alone. What else are you reading right now? I am rereading my favorite Ray Bradbury book, which is Something Wicked This Way Comes. Ooh. When the book came out, it wouldn't be called YA, but now mm -hmm. I, I think it would definitely be called YA because the two main characters are boys like right on the verge of teenagehood. I love Ray Bradbury. He's one of my favorite authors anyways. Something Wicked This Way Comes is my favorite favorite of his because it's spooky without being too scary. And it's just like the perfect October-esque book, which is definitely my comfort month, which is why I'm reading it right now. Mm -hmm. Spooky without being scary. That's a great description. Mallory, what do you want more of in your reading life right now? Aside from werewolves and, you know, fairies that jump out of things and scare you. I'm an enthusiast. So I love the things that I love so much. So I'm always looking for more books in my wheelhouse. And conversely, I'm always trying to try new things. So I'm one of those people where, you know, if people say, oh, I don't really like horror, but here's something you might really love because I loved it. I'm always willing to try something different because I love novelty. I love new things. I will read in any genre. I love Westerns. I love nonfiction. So I like to vacillate between something totally new and my comfort stuff. So like werewolves, carnivals, horror stuff. It's a pretty wide range for me. 
All right, Mallory, this is going to be fun. So we're thinking about comfort reading slash exploratory, try new things reading for you at what is going to be a really exciting, but also stressful time in your life. Yes. You're an enthusiast. I love that word, by the way, and the way you apply it to your reading life. I'm really noticing a complexity in all your favorites and what you're drawn to. You don't seem to be looking for either or. You want both and. Kelly Link, you described it as scary and joyful. I mean, those two words don't usually go together. A Head Full of Ghosts is very lifelike, but also not. Yes. And Priest Daddy is really funny and really sad. Outlander, you don't get to see behind the curtain. You see what happens out front, and that's not working for you. Something I'm struck by is you say that you really like horror. And I just really hadn't noticed before how much horror writing is deeply imaginative, making up situations and worlds and monsters that do not exist. Is imagination something you look for in your writing? Is that something you appreciate? Or is that just a coincidence there? No, that is incredibly insightful. Like I said, as an anxious person, my brain is constantly working in overdrive to think of what could happen, what's going to happen, always trying to say 15 steps ahead of myself. So when I'm reading writing that does that and sort of extrapolates this one crazy idea or has this brand new thing with all kinds of, you know, world building around it, it's just like candy for my brain. (laughs) I want to start by saying, thinking about Millicent Patrick who she was in Hollywood and how she was iconoclastic and how she was ahead of her time and how that was really hard for her. There are a couple of recent historical fiction books that are set in that era in Hollywood. They're about actresses. And I think readers who are fascinated by that time period may enjoy taking a look at The Seven Husbands of Evelyn Hugo by Taylor Jenkins Reid and Susan Meissner's Stars Over Sunset Boulevard. I don't know that these are right for you, Mallory. These are back and forth historical fiction set both in the present day and then in the 40s, maybe the 50s for Taylor Jenkins Reid. Each character in the present has a strong link to the past, but they may or may not realize it. And for those who want to experience both the glamour and the underbelly of Hollywood in that era, those could be really fun reads. I mean, they sound great to me. Maybe when you want to step outside your comfort zone. I've heard so much about both of those titles. And you know, when you see, we we as readers sometimes have this weird experience where something might not be normally for us. But when we see so much buzz about it, you're kind of like, oh, I want to try that, even though I normally wouldn't pick it up. That's actually how I feel about both of those titles, because both of them got quite a bit of buzz. And I kept seeing them on lists and then on Instagram. And I was like, they both have nice covers. Maybe I should read them. (laughs) It's hard not to have a nice cover when you're writing about that era of Hollywood. Oh, absolutely. So much glamour. Okay. But going into the Mallory has a stressful time coming up, Let's give her all the werewolves wheelhouse. How do you feel about literary fiction? I actually love literary fiction, especially if it's weird. Have you read The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry? I have, and I loved it so, so much. So yes, on the right track? Yes. There's a big monster in a lake. Oh my God. I love that book so, so much, especially love books that are, you think it's about one thing, but it's really about another. Oh, And the Essex Serpent is amazing because you think it's about this lake monster, but it's actually all about the emotional arc of this woman in this small town and how people affect each other. I love that book so much. I'm glad to hear I'm on the right track. I feel like you've probably read this, but tell me about Mark Danielski's House of Leaves. Oh, I love House of Leaves. (laughs) (laughs) You're so good. This is probably why you picked this. It's a book about a book about a documentary, about a house. You know, that kind of sounds like something we discussed already. Yes. (laughs) It's like a lozenge. You can't bite, I mean, you can bite right into it, but you're going to miss a lot of it. It's just, you have to sort of immerse yourself in this world. And it is very weird. It is very strange. It took me actually a long time to read it because it is just a strange, strange book. The structure is weird. You know, sometimes the footnotes will be upside down and there's certain words that are in certain colors, but I loved it so, so much. I'm happy to hear that. And I think I need to point out to listeners who are like, that sounds amazing. One of my favorite Goodreads reviews on that book says something like, goodbye sleep. It was nice knowing you. (laughs) It is a haunted house book, but it's so much more than that. 
It's sort of like why I love Head Full of Ghosts. You know, the main plot is about this strange house that is scaring this family and is getting bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. But then you read about all these other characters as they deal with that and the characters trying to tell their story and those characters' emotional arcs. It's so complex and it's so fascinating. Now I'm nervous, Mallory. <laughs> well, you shouldn't be. You've nailed it. Every You're two for two right now. Have you tried The Hike by Drew Maggery? I have. And I also loved that book. I feel like this is like the rare thing where you like read your horoscope or something and you're like, yes, this is 100% right. This is all me. <laughs> well, at least at first, what you think is happening is not what is happening. And we know you like that. Yes. The Hike, it's sort of like a science fiction Alice in Wonderland. It's about this guy on a business trip and he ends up going for a walk. As he's walking, it gets very bizarre and he meets these strange cast of characters. I adored it because it's just so bizarre. Well, as a reader and as someone who talks about books, I'm always grateful to either land upon or hear a really pithy description like that. It's so easy to imagine what that might be like. Oh, yes. Now, this is a little bit of a departure for you because it's not, the, it wouldn't be slated in the same section of the bookstore as the books we've talked about already. But have you read anything by Tana French, especially in the woods? I've read everything by Tana French. <laughs> okay, now I really am going to run out of books. Her and Megan Abbott are my two favorite mystery writers, mm -hmm. and In the Woods is my favorite of hers. I feel like you have like opened a little keyhole <laughs> into my brain. You're completely nailing my entire literary taste. In the Woods is amazing because it does the Paul Tremblay thing where right up until the end, you don't know if what's happening is supernatural or man-made. So brilliant. Her writing is very dense and it's one of those books where you pick it up and you're like, oh, this is going to take me a long time to get through. And I've never finished any of her books in more than two sittings. Wow. Did you have to put them in the freezer? No, they're not. Well, In the Woods is a little bit spooky, but it's not too scary. It's 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 very, it's more thrillery than horror-y. I would give it like a five on the scary scale. Okay, Mallory. What about Experimental Film by uh, Gemma Files? I've never read it. Hallelujah. <laughs> what do you know about it? Nothing. I'm so excited. It's a ghost story wrapped around a film. And <gasps> you just spent three years writing a book about a film. Oh my God. I'm going to go buy it today. <laughs> this is about a teacher, a teacher of film history. She gets sucked into investigating a very old mystery about how and why an experimental filmmaker in the past disappeared. Oh my God. As she starts digging around, she finds out that the film itself is a clue and possibly more than the clue. Are you tracking? Oh my gosh, I feel like you're laying breadcrumbs and I am running through the forest. I'm like, this is so in my wheelhouse. I am so excited. I'm happy to hear it. And also very relieved. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. Have you read The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert? I have not. This is a YA book that came out maybe about a year ago. It reminds me of The Hike, but it's got a whole fairy tale element going on. Although, interestingly, there is an Alice connection. The 17 year old protagonist's name is Alice, and that is not a coincidence. She lives in Manhattan with her mom. They have been on the run for 17 years ever since Alice was born. It seems like bad luck follows them wherever they go. But what Alice's mom knows and Alice does not is that it's not bad luck exactly. It has to do with this really creepy, bizarre, unsettling book of stories that Alice's grandmother wrote. This book is very hard to find. There are very few copies, but it has this cultish fan base who obsess about this book. And Alice has been told, stay away from it. But then one day her mom disappears, leaving behind just a page torn from the old book and a note that says, stay away from the hazel wood. And this is a YA story. And Alice is 17 years old. So of course, you know what happens next. Oh my gosh. Conveniently, Alice has a friend at school who is obsessed with the book her grandmother wrote, who's always thought like, oh, hey, Alice, how cool. Hey, that's your grandma. Hey, hey. So with his help, they go and they have to find their way into the wood. And then when they get there, holy buckets. This is like the original German Grimm Brothers fairy tales, not the Disney version. Oh, <laughs> this is 
really twisted. You're a horror reader. You'll be fine. But for me, I was like, (laughs) wow, that's pretty bloody for a YA book or for anything I'm reading. It reminded me a lot of the 13th tale because of that family connection in the story and the hidden history. But it also had a little bit of the matrix to it. There's this other world just on the other side of Manhattan. Oh, I am so in for this. This sounds so amazing. Okay. Now you said that you are up for trying new things. Always. Okay. Now the title is going to sound like you. I may have to sell you on the description. So have you read The Terror by Dan Simmons? No, but I own it. Do you really? Yes. I'm one of those people that buys a bunch of books and then will read them all eventually. I thought this would be a stretch for you, but something called out to you when you came upon it. Do you remember how that happened? Well, one, it's called The Terror, so I will pick it up off the shelf. (laughs) But I know that Dan Simmons is a classic horror writer, and this is probably why you thought, oh, I'm going to have to sell her on this description. You know, just reading about a bunch of people who are on a boat that gets stuck in the ice. In 1845. I said, okay, I don't know if I really care about ice or the Arctic, but I've heard it's very scary. So I said, you know what? I'll give it a try eventually, but now I'm going to have to bump it up on my list. So the creature from the Black Lagoon is, I still want to call 1950, 50 years ago. Like I'm a hundred. Oh my God. I do the same thing. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel better. But we've talked about all 20th century books, late 20th century books, and your favorites have all been in the last 20 years. So I wasn't sure how you'd feel. This is a recent release, but the setting is 1845. Oh, I am always game to try out historical fiction and stuff that was written a long time ago or that's set a very long time ago. And it's true. It is called The Terror, which, note to self, never get on a boat called The Terror. Bad things are going to happen. I know. Can you believe that? That is some serious foreshadowing. (laughs) The men on board get stuck. They're surrounded by the ice. They need a thaw that will set them free so they can either go forward as they search for the Northwest Passage or they can go back. Time goes on and they're running out of supplies as you do when you're on a mission in the Arctic. Nothing good comes of being trapped in tight spaces over time. Already you've got some pretty tense situations happening on board the HMS Terror. But then they slowly come to realize that they are not alone and there is something out there. Oh my gosh. I know. This does sound like you. Why did I doubt it? (laughs) Just the phrase, they were not alone. (laughs) They could put that as a blurb on the front of any book and I would pick it up. Some publicist is listening to that somewhere. Your mailbox is going to be full, Mallory. (laughs) That phrase elicits like such a thrill of terror for me. Like it's such a, I mean, it's such a primal fear, you know, when you're a kid and you're alone in your room or you're out in the woods or you're walking home one night, like, and you're not alone immediately. I'm I'm in. Or I'm thinking, give me internal conflict any day. It's so funny. I love finding out about different reader lives. And for me, I will a hundred percent take a scary monster out on the ice while I'm trapped there than like a crush that I have to figure out how to talk to. <laughs> You know what, though? The thing that makes me think, I'll try that, is talking to a reader who loves a head full of ghosts. When I come over to the literal dark side, that's how it's going to happen. Sometimes I feel like I am a cheerleader. You know, do you ever have a, like a couple of books where you feel like, you know, you you just have like pom-poms for and that, you know, <laughs> you're, you're like a kiosk for that book where as soon as anyone mentions it, you like pop in their window and you say, oh, hi. Oh my gosh. Can I tell you about it? Because I love it so much. That's how I feel about Head Full of Ghosts. Every author wishes they had a kiosk. <laughs> Paul Tremblay, I am your Head Full of Ghosts kiosk. I am here. You don't even have to pay me. All right, Mallory. So we talked about Experimental Film by Gemma Files, The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert, The Terror by Dan Simmons. Of those three books, what do you think you'll read next? I think I'm going to have to go with Experimental Film. So it was a big tie between Hazelwood and Experimental Film, but I am such a film nerd and I love weird movies, as you can imagine, as someone who loves weird stories and weird books. You know, when you hear about a book and it feels like someone put a hook in your brain and you just are getting tugged towards it, that's how I feel towards Experimental Film now. I love feeling that way about a book and I hope you enjoy that one. Thank you so much. This is, again, it feels like I just got a book makeover and then I have to go (laughs) rush out and and read these books. A book over, but no zippers or buttons. Definitely no tight pants. 
and has everything has pockets. Now you're talking. Thanks for talking <laughs> books with me today, Mallory. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Mallory today and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. Maybe it'll be easier for you to come up with titles than it was for me. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 176, that's 176, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. We've got another great episode lined up for you next week. Here's a sneak peek. If you really want to get something extra out of your reading, it will not harm you to annotate your books. (laughs) I can hear people like rubbing their hands together like, ooh. Yes. I'll read with a highlighter and a pen and a stack of sticky notes and highlight words or phrases or even themes that stand out to me. Just the action of physically highlighting and writing down some notes really makes my brain think harder about the book than I would otherwise. I'm able to look back later and say, this book stood out to me in these different ways. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you are on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Tag us on Instagram to share what you are reading. You can find me there at Ann Bogle and at What Should I Read Next? Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. If you're not on the list, you can fix that now by visiting whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to sign up for our free weekly delivery. If you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, please share it with a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or buy or borrow a copy of my new book, I'd Rather Be Reading, for yourself or a friend. You can also check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash what should I read next. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash what should I read next. Thanks to the people who make the show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Cheers!